God, forgive Andrew. (laughs) Have mercy on him. Have mercy on his soul. We do want to uh, pay attention to you, God. We do want what we read in your words to be, uh, um, be for us what you intend. Uh, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are good soil, to uh, receive what you would have for us, what you would have us know, who you would have us become. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. A few weeks ago, we read in the book of Acts about Jesus' disciples first being called Christians in the city of Antioch. And it was there in Antioch that Christians' identity was molded, their missional identity and their communal identity, uh, building on the foundation laid in Jerusalem immediately after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, uh, ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, which we are told about in the second chapter of Acts, which is where we're going to begin this morning. Uh, Listen closely. This is the word of God. Acts 2 Verse 42, Jesus' disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That Greek word there is koinonia, fellowship. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, those who were being rescued. So devotion, learning, shared meals, just everyday ordinary breakfast, lunch, dinner meals, communion, Lord's Supper, Prayer, wonders, signs, unity, generosity overflowing, fellowship, worship, a good reputation among outsiders, and multiplication. All of these typified or characterized the very earliest church. It was a community of people who were on fire in more ways than one. And now fast forward 30 or 35 years, about a generation, maybe a generation and a half, to a passage in the latter part of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament where we read these words, uh, chapter 10 beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That day, we're not sure when it's going to come, but it's still approaching and it's still closer now than it was yesterday. And we hear in this passage in Hebrews, written 30 or 35 years after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, so a generation and a half after the earliest on-fire church, we hear this call to stay the course, to keep the faith, 
to persevere, to continue to be the people God has called them together in Christ to be, and that God has empowered them to be, and to be about the things God has called them to be about as one body, as Paul writes elsewhere, with many parts, with many different parts, many types of parts, very many different types of parts. Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. The body of Christ or the church is to be a collective of people who, just like the first church, are characterized by and overflowing with love and good deeds. Again, say that to someone nearby you. Love and good deeds. We'll try it again. Love and good deeds. Yes. And the author of the book of Hebrews tells those who would read his letter to spur one another on to such. I know you know what the word spur means. Beyond an amazingly wonderful NBA basketball team and franchise with a storied history and an amazing fan base. A spur was and is this little pronged piece of metal that would be attached to the back of a horse rider's boot in order to give a horse a little poke, in order to say or to communicate to that horse, get going, keep going, move along, move forward, you can do this onward. And while a spur poke to a horse doesn't necessarily feel great, its message, what it attempts to communicate is clear. And while a spur poke may not feel like a massage or a warm embrace, the author's point is clear as well. Prompt one another, help one another, stir one another, some translations have there, to be about love and good deeds. In another place in the New Testament, including chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, uh, we're told to encourage one another. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. He wrote to the church, to the Christians in Thessalonica, encourage one another and build each other up. And the echo of toward love and good deeds is there. Sometimes our nudging one another along may be a little uncomfortable, like a spur. But spurring one another doesn't have to hurt doesn't have to not feel good. It doesn't have to, it shouldn't, really. Sometimes what one person thinks of encouragement can feel to another person receiving that encouragement like so-called constructive criticism, right? Which itself can often feel more like criticism than construction. Therefore, a good practice is to always preface and surround such encouragement, especially the constructive criticism kind of encouragement, with affirmation and love and reaffirmation. Our goal is not to hurt or poke one another after all, but that to which we are called, which is to build one another up and encourage one another toward love and good deeds. Build one another up. Say that to someone around you. And this one anotherness or this mutuality is at the heart 
of what is meant in the New Testament by community, what it means to be church. Unfortunately, the church has too often been in our enlightenment and post-enlightenment focusing on an individual worldview, merely gatherings of individuals. The church has too often in our century and in our time been merely gatherings of individuals who rarely unite and who never fully unite and so often remain what has been called a lonely crowd of individuals, even though the word community is formed by two parts, which mean calm, with, and unity, which means unity. A community is a group of people who are united, who belong to each other, who are for each other, who love each other, who serve each other, who long for each other's well-being, and at least in the case of the church, who possess a shared vision and a shared mission. A neighborhood is one thing. A community is a different thing. A church or even a church building is one thing. A community is a different thing. And the two don't necessarily always overlap, though the vision is, at least with the church, that they do. That a church is also and always a community of people who are united, of people who belong to each other, who relate to each other in and through Christ, who unites them, who unites us. The, the single Greek word, it's just one word in Greek, translated one another, shows up 100 times in the New Testament in 94 different verses. 47 of those occurrences are instructions to Jesus' followers. 60% of them were penned by the Apostle Paul. A full third of those occurrences of that word one another are encouragements to love one another. Another third are commands to the church about getting along and how to get along. Love one another, serve one another, greet one another with a kiss four times. Live at peace with one another, accept one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, seek good for one another, be devoted to one another, the people around you, even those you don't know, whose names you do not know. Be subject to one another. Submit to one another. Wash one another's feet. And look at those and read those and take a deep breath. and Take it all in and imagine it. What a beautiful thing. There's a reason that in the scriptures the church is called the bride of Christ. Because when the church is united to Christ and one another, and when the church is serving and loving and living out its calling, it is a beautiful thing, a radiant thing, Paul would say. So let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some is in their, are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see that day approaching. In the Presbyterian tradition, we understand baptism to be not only baptism into Christ, but also into the body of Christ, 
into the church, into the bride of Christ, to which Jesus is united, and in which and through which, and among which Jesus somehow attaches himself. It is not merely an outward experience, but in communion and in baptism, Jesus attaches himself to us, reveals himself, makes himself real, if you will, if you will, with that simple little word. It's the same word that John Calvin and all of those with him 500 years ago described how Christ, how God meets us in communion, in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, in that shared meal, that he is really there with us, among us, through us, and for us. In his amazing little book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words that are on the cover of our bulletin this morning. Christianity means community through Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Whether it be a brief single encounter or the daily, daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and only in Jesus Christ. We belong to each other, and that belonging is inherently, implicitly, in and through Jesus Christ. The whole notion of going to church, the whole notion of going to church, in as much as it stops there and goes no further and no deeper, is severely lacking in some ways and is a mere shell of the more profound and even mystical union that is available for those who are in Christ and as we are in Christ. We get caught up in the externals and we focus on our differences while overlooking Christ in one another. The bond that ties us together, that unites us, who unites us, who makes us one, who weds us to one another. Look at the people around you. Now. The question has been asked, albeit facetiously, how many of certain kinds of Christians does it take to change a light bulb? How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, because their hands are already up in the air. How many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. One to change the bulb itself, and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. <laughs> How many Baptists does it take to change the light bulb? Fifteen. One to change the light bulb, and three committees to approve the change, and then decide who brings the fried chicken and potato salad. <laughs> Picnic today. How many Episcopalians? Are there any Episcopalians, former Episcopalians here? Couple. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Three. One to call the electrician. One to mix the drinks, and one to talk about how much better that old bulb was. Isn't, isn't that true? I like the old bulb better. How many Unitarians does it take to change the light bulb? We choose not to make a statement either in favor of or against the need for light bulbs. However, if in your own journey you have found that light bulbs work for you, you are invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your light bulb for the next Sunday service, during which we will explore a number of light bulb traditions. 
including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, halogen, and LED, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. <laughs> Father, forgive me. And how many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is undetermined. But a statement also. Whether your light is bright, dull, or completely out, you are loved. You can be a light bulb, a turnip bulb, a tulip bulb. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that you were loved. So bring a bulb of your choice to the Sunday lighting service and a covered dish to share. Thank you. And how many Lutherans does it take to change a light bulb? None. Because Lutherans don't believe in change. Of course. <laughs> I know that's not true everywhere, but it is true with someone that I know who's a Lutheran pastor. And aren't you glad to be a Presbyterian and in a Presbyterian church today? Sarcasm. Say it again. Oh, right. We have all of our own issues, all of our own problems, all of our own depravities. Of course we do. We always will. But even in our imperfections and in our insecurities and in our inadequacies and in our deep, dark Presbyterian depravity, God calls us to a sort of loving unity where people are blessed and healed and encouraged through Christ who dwells among us, in us, with us, through us. Ordinarily, when we celebrate communion together, we affirm our faith using the ancient words of the Apostles' Creed with churches all around the world through the centuries. And in speaking the Apostles' Creed, there are these lines that say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, of the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The communion of saints. And that communion does not refer to the Lord's Supper, to the Eucharist, to the eating of that meal together, but rather it refers to a mystical union. Say that again. Mystical union that according to the scriptures exists among and between those who are together in Christ, though it is not always evident on the outside. We do not always live it, but nevertheless, it exists. It is there. It is available. The communion of saints. If each of us gather on Sunday morning with the thought, intention, and commitment to encourage one another in Christ, and by God's grace, what a different experience the church might be and we might have. If when we got ready on Sunday morning, got into our car, got out of our car, entered the sanctuary, and our intention was to encourage one another and build up whoever we could, what would the church look like? If our intention was God first and then one another, what a different experience we might have. But for this to happen, for us to experience such, requires more than hurrying in and hurrying out for those who are interested in a sort of community in Christ to which God invites us. And such community requires honesty and transparency and vulnerability and generosity and sacrifice and eagerness, and love, and intention. Some people dislike the practice of some churches, including this one, of intentionally greeting one another, stand up, greet one another, say hello to your neighbor. And I understand the dislike, I understand the objections by some 
who are not a part of our congregation, some who come and visit, some who are here and just can't bear it. And maybe that's the reason that some of us just come in late every Sunday morning to avoid that time. Some people would like to remain anonymous, to remain in themselves, to experience God uh, in solitude. I get it. But nevertheless, there is something good about that practice, about getting outside of oneself, extending oneself, reaching out, being intentional, and saying, this is who I am. Who are you? You are loved. To connect in some even simple way in Christ with another person. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Catherine Walden writes, community matters, especially in the church. Having people in your life that know about the details of your life, the fears, the victories, the struggles, the relationships, the hurts, the promotions in our self-promoting, All of that matters, living on one's own, isolated, being a member of a lonely crowd, independence will only get a person so far. We need the love of one another through God's grace and by God's power. I read something by Kelly Flanagan, just a a line this week. She wrote, community is the invitation to be a mess when you need to be. This is not an invitation to mess things up or to intentionally mess with people. But it is an invitation to show up and to be, and to be fully present and to be vulnerable with all of my mess. And there's plenty of it. And all of your mess and who you are and your scars and your wounds and your hurts and mine together as imperfect but on the road people. That is community and a commitment to encourage one another, to know one another, to bless, forgive, serve one another as God has done those things for us. So on our way kind of out, we're gonna do a little exercise this morning. There should be on your pew near the center aisle some little cards that look like this, or just simple little cards. And you don't have to do this, it's just an invitation. But to grab two cards of any color, the colors don't really matter, they're just for fun. And the elders or the ushers have some more if you don't have any. And you can take some, pass them along. Try to get two. What I want to ask you to do is write the names of one or two or three people on those cards. We have, I think we have, hopefully we have plenty of cards. If not, pass them around. And write the names of one or two or three people in this church, maybe in this sanctuary this morning, but if not in the sanctuary this morning, people who are a part of this body of Christ. There are plenty of others out there that we can love, serve, bless, encourage. But today, this morning, just I want you to write down the names of one or two or three people on both cards that you can love, bless, pray for, and or encourage in some tangible way specific way and then with one of those cards when it comes around just drop it in the offering basket as part of your worship as part of your devotion as part of your commitment as part of your saying I'm a part of this family and I want to do what you've called me to do God and then take one home put it in your pocket put it in your wallet put it on your mirror put it next to your bed put it wherever you'll see it regularly this week to remind you 
to love, care for, pray, bless, encourage that person or persons at some point, at least once, over the course of this coming week.